Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. This is going to be episode number 596, and this is with Carrie Templin and Dustin Darvo. Dustin is with the Arizona Game and Fish Department, and Carrie is with the Tano National Forest, and we're going to be talking about the Woodbury Fire. Before we get to that podcast episode, I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com, the insider. They are the sponsor of this podcast, and I want to remind you that there is a 30-day free trial of the insider right now. So if you want the best harvest statistics, draw odds, all of the information on different units, states, uh, animals to hunt across the West, go to GoHunt.com forward slash Scott. All one word, and that's going to get you a 30-day free trial. Follow the prompts. I also want to thank Go Hunt Gear Shop. My friend Cody Nelson of 20-plus years is the optics manager there at Go Hunt Gear Shop. Uh, if you have any optical, binoculars, tripods, any glassing questions, uh, anything to do with optics, uh, if you'd like to buy uh, optics or spotting scopes of any kind, rifle scopes, anything to do with glassing, give Cody a call 702-847-8747, that's extension 2, or you can also email him at optics at gohunt.com. Also remember that the month of August, there is a gear shop giveaway for a $1,000 Go Hunt gear shop giveaway uh, gift card. All you got to do is tell Cody, or when you check out online just check out with j scott 19 to enter that thousand dollar go hunt gear shop uh, giveaway i want to thank them for their sponsorship i also want to thank kuyu ultralight hunting based out of dixon california that is the ultralight hunting gear that i wear on all my hunts you can go to kuyu that's k-u-i-u.com to learn more uh, also phonescope.com Use the JScott19 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount. Uh, PhoneScope is the digiscoping adapter piece that I use with my iPhone X to take videos and photos that you see on my Instagram. And then onxmaps.com. Use the JScott19 promo code. You're going to get a 20% discount on all of the phone app, all of the OnX phone app orders. So go to onxmaps.com. Dot com use the jscott19 promo code guys let's get right to this podcast episode i want to thank you guys for listening if you have any follow-up questions or any questions at all of me you can send me an email at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com you can also follow along my instagram at jscottoutdoors and send me a direct message i appreciate the support welcome okay. to the jscott outdoors podcast this is going to be a fun episode with carrie templin she is a public affairs uh, officer of the Tano National Forest, and we've got Dustin Darvo, who is a biologist for the Arizona Game and Fish Department in Region 6. And I've known Dustin for quite a while. Carrie, I have not met you yet, but I appreciate both of you coming on the podcast today. I'd like to discuss the Woodbury Fire uh, that took place uh, in the Tano National Forest. And Carrie, I'll probably just uh, let you uh, take off from there. Tell us, the listeners maybe that haven't heard about the fire, uh, I have quite a few people that listen that aren't local to Arizona, but a ton of Arizona listeners and people, you know, they want to know what's going on. So can you talk a little bit about that Woodbury fire? Certainly, and thank you for the invitation to join you this afternoon. So the Woodbury fire was reported um, Saturday afternoon, early June. Uh, we do know that it was a human-caused wildfire, although 
we have never been able to gather enough information to determine an exact cause. So um, that's one of the things that the public always asks is who caused it and what are we doing about it. So uh, we don't and know Carrie, yet. We Carrie, before you go any further, I, I, let me set a little groundwork. I, I probably should have done this. For those that don't know about the Woodbury fire, we're kind of talking and, and Carrie, you can get more specific, but Superstition Mountains, kind of northeast of the Phoenix Metroplex, you know, kind of north and east of Apache Junction, uh, you know, let's say from, you know, Canyon Lake, Apache Trail, kind of rough area, you know, up towards Roosevelt Lake, you know, and then over towards the highway that goes from uh, East Mesa to, say, Florence, and then on up to Superior, um, just to give people the rough general overview of where that is. Uh, and then uh, go ahead, Carrie, uh, with, with some of the details. Okay, so yeah, you described that general area pretty well. Um, so, and you're right, it, it covered a large area before it was all said and done, uh, just under 124,000 acres, making it the fifth largest fire in Arizona history. Um, and, uh, you know, we spent uh, almost $24 million trying to put this fire out, uh, had every resource available um, at our disposal because uh, it was early in the season. So we had air tankers, helicopters, we had crews, engines, you know, uh, we had a type 1 incident management team. A lot of interest because, you know, people could see it um, and everybody a lot of people know and love the Superstition Mountains and the Superstition Wilderness, and so um, high level of interest. So, um, but, um, you know, we did put line around uh, all of that fire. We also used uh, bot fire with fire is another way to word it. Uh, actually used um, both State Highway 88, which is the Apache Trail, and State Highway 188, which is the highway um, on the south side of Roosevelt Lake as some of our holding features. And so we were able to successfully, um, over a long duration, build line and declare that fire contained on the 15th of July. So it burned for about a month, is that, is that safe to say, or a little longer? Just a little over a month, yes, if I remember right, I believe it started on um, June 8th. So June 8th, okay. June 8th. So we uh, had a lot of firefighters working that fire for, for a fair amount of time. A couple follow-up questions. Um, because it was early in the season, is it one of those things that it's a, it's a blessing that it was early in the season because potentially if it would have come at a later date, I mean, could have it gotten a lot more out of control or do you think that those holding points uh, where you guys were able to hold and stop the fire, that that would have also held true if it was, say, a month later and started in mid-July? Um, I think, it, you know, you never know for sure which way it would have gone. And so it, it probably had the potential to do either of the above. Um, the advantage of when it started um, would be that because it was earlier in the year, things had not had the time or the extra heating 
to dry out as much as that those plants would have if it had started in mid-July this year. So from that perspective, um, while it burned a lot of acreage, we probably had less overall what we call burn severity than we might have had if the fire had started later in the year. Um, on the other side of the coin, you know, had it started later in the year, uh, weather and humidity might have been able to help us. Uh, one of the things that is going on this year that is um, more unusual than some other years is that because Arizona had such a wet winter in 2018 and 2019, we have had just a beautiful carpet of wildflowers and grasses that when it gets to 90 and 100 degrees turn into just dead yellow, but it's a, it's a carpet of, of weeds and grass that go as far as you can see. And so it doesn't take much to start a fire in what we, we term fine fuel, which are those, those fine grasses. But it also sure. doesn't take much in those fine fuels for when the humidity comes up for um, not being able to carry fire. So there's okay. a little bit of, you know, both sides to that coin. Yeah, I understand. Um, you know, a lot of the listeners of this podcast, uh, a, lot of, a lot of hunters, a lot of fishermen, a lot of sportsmen listen to this podcast. And, you know, the, the, the questions, and, and Dustin, uh, like you to weigh in on this when you see fit. Um, my question, Carrie, would be, have there been uh, surveys of the burned and, the, you know, the fire area from, from the ground and from the air and what is the sense of how hot it burned? Uh, obviously, it's probably relative and, you know, burns hotter in some places. Uh, but as far as wildlife goes, do we have any idea yet the effect on the wildlife? And to take that a step further, potential effect on the wildlife, uh, you know, have there been sightings of animals already moving back in, you know, did, did, was there mortality, all of those good questions, uh, both of you, you know, weigh in what you know. Okay, well, okay. I'll start it, and then I'll, and then I'll let Dustin um, pick it up, because he's probably better versed in what the animals may be doing, but to ask, to answer your original question on uh, burn severity, the, the Forest Service did um, put together what we call a BEAR team, Burned Area Emergency Response Team. They were able to do some aerial surveys and some things on the ground. And from that, they developed what we call a burn severity map. And that tells you where we had uh, pockets of you know, high heat and more um, loss of vegetation. Thankfully, um, for that entire 123,000 plus acres, not very little of it is high burn severity. The, the high burn severities are in the upper reaches of the canyons where they were on the, the steep slope. So from a perspective of what burned and how hot, um, thankfully, the entire area did not. 
but I'll let Devin talk to um, some of the animal-related questions. Yeah, Certainly. Justin, what uh, what did you find out there? What what have you what you, what info do you have? Yeah, well, before I forget, and I know Carrie will probably get to it as well, but one of the great resources that's available on a government website is NCWeb, I-N-C-I-W-E-B, and just do a Google search for that, and it will come up, and that's basically a nationwide service that shows most of the wildfires that are actually occurring and even past occurrences um, that our department used that resource in cooperation just with a lot of Forest Service staff to kind of watch and monitor the progression of this. So that website, if you go into that and even just put in their search engine for Woodbury Fire, it will bring up the incident page and it has everything from the origination date and the containment date of the fire. But along a banner, it has tons of information, announcements, the closures, uh, photographs, and also maps of the progression perimeter. And then if you did that same search for that bear team, it brings up that incident page as well and would have that map of that fire severity that Carrie was talking about. So as we monitored the daily progression of this fire because the incident teams would go in at night with infrared cameras and videos on their planes and they could determine the heat signature of this fire. And they would put that out basically on a daily basis that we could monitor that um, since we didn't want to be inside that fire perimeter either because of safety reasons. We could watch that progression and for almost every day, including the days that it would burn 10 to 12,000 acres you know, in one shot, it was burning slow enough with you know, not a tremendous amount of heat that we were pretty comfortable knowing that wildlife had plenty of time to get out of the way. It created a mosaic pattern of both low, moderate, and very, you know, a minimum amount of high severity and unburned areas that it gave escape routes for most wildlife. So we're fairly comfortable watching that. And even some of the progression where it did burn 10 to 12,000 or more acres in a day, some of that was only going like a mile per hour. And in that rough terrain, we're fairly comfortable wildlife would have adequate time to get out, you know, and away from the fire. We were seeing a little bit of an increase on the fire perimeter of wildlife kind of coming out. But once again, we stayed out of that area, you know, just for safety reasons, you know, to stay out of the way of all the fire, you know, containment operations that were going on. So as this started to reach containment and we started working with the bear team, which their job, and Carrie can get into that a little bit more too um, in a little bit as far as the main responsibilities of the bear team to monitor, you know, runoff from flooding and, and safety issues that are with that. Um, wildlife is left up to the state. So when this fire really started to expand, we already made requests to get some out-of-cycle survey money to take a helicopter in there once, you know, the containment was there and the safety measures were lifted and flight restrictions were lifted that we could go in there. So we performed those surveys during the week of July 23rd, so basically a week and a half, two weeks ago. Um, so we went in every morning for four days and did a grid pattern aerial survey and we, in order to get coverage over that time frame, we did transects every mile starting from the western end of the burn and then did it all the way to the eastern end of the burn every mile. And we included at least a half a mile, a little bit more outside of the burn to try and catch that maybe increased density of wildlife that escaped that fire. So in that time frame, um, 
pleasantly surprised but also anticipated the amount of wildlife we've seen within the burn area. So there was already a little bit of regeneration of vegetation going on and we hadn't even got any precipitation yet so that was kind of good to see. But primarily a lot of that steep country is whitetail you know, area and we directly observed um, 81 white-tailed deer both within and directly adjacent to the burn area. Um, probably half or more of those were inside the burn area within that mosaic pattern of low severity that kind of burnt some of the vegetation off but left some of it kind of charred which is going to regenerate fairly quickly to a lot of that unburned area and a lot of that is shown on that severity map that if you went into that bare incident page you can see that map and kind of get an idea of where it's going at. Um, our department I'm actually working on a GIS storyboard that's going to have a lot of the pictures and videos and the map of where we surveyed with some of the wildlife locations so that's going to come available here within this next week hopefully as well. Um, so within the burn area um, seeing bighorn sheep, um, of course white-tailed deer, um, just a few mule deer, javelina and one black bear. Um, so kind of what we were hoping for that they were in there. Um, we were very comfortable with a lot of that area that we were low enough elevation that we could actually see small charred and blackened sticks and trees and vegetation that if we, that there was wildlife carcasses across that, fairly confident that we would probably see some. Naturally not going to see all going about 50 mile an hour in the helicopter, um, but we didn't see any. And I specifically looked for that myself you know, on both sides of the chopper directly underneath while the other two observers in the chopper were, you know, looking for the wildlife that we could actually circle on and actually classify. So we were pleased that we didn't see a lot of that. Um, we didn't cover a lot of the outside country where I think maybe the bighorn sheep went because we do have a lot of questions and calls on that. Um, but we also seen numerous and, and, you know, small mammals, you know, foxes and, and coyotes and rabbits and tons of birds already in that burn area. So overall, from seeing that fire severity and the resources that the you know, Forest Service has available, um, majority of this is going to be a really good burn. Some of it's going to recover fairly quickly within this next year to three years. Some of it may take three to five years and then up to ten. And then, unfortunately, some of the higher burn severity areas and even that lower Sonoran Desert area towards the eastern end of this may take decades to recover. But that is going to provide multiple successional planning and, and stages of vegetation types over the next you know, years to come that's going to highly benefit wildlife in that area. Um, did we have losses? Yes, I'm sure that we did. Was it significant? Don't believe so. So I think overall this natural occurrence of wildlife on the landscape which humans have been successfully suppressing um, this is going to be a fairly beneficial burn. And I'll let Carrie kind of chime in um, with what she's talked with some of her staff and her views on it too, but on the wildlife perspective and regeneration, kind of looking forward to it. Good stuff. Okay, so yeah, as far as the vegetation stuff goes, um, Dustin, I think you covered it pretty well. Um, you know, for the majority of the Tonto National Forest and most of Arizona, fire is a natural occurrence on the landscape and the majority of our, our um, fuel types, our trees and things are adapted to fire and, and perform better and are healthier if they get fire across the landscape at a low intensity level on a fairly regular basis. The one exception to that would be the Sonoran Desert 
landscape, you know, where we have our, our big saguaros, they do not um, survive well with fire, um, and it doesn't take a, a high-intensity fire to potentially uh, kill swirls, although it will probably be three to five years before we know the extent of mortality on the, on the swirls from the Woodbury fire. However, it would not be uncommon for um, a majority of those swirls that actually have fire burn under them to perish because of this fire. They're very sensitive to the heat and to the, to the fire, uh, unlike a lot of the other vegetation by far? Oh, very definitely. Um, because of the, the way a saguaro is um, designed, you know, that the skin on a saguaro, if you, you know, if you can actually get in between the ribs, it's a very thin and a very soft skin. And in many cases, like our skin, it doesn't take much heat to get that to blister, and then yeah. you then it scabs over. And once that scabs over, then it can't take in water and it can't expand. And and that's usually what causes the saguaro to die over several years. Terry, in your mind, um, could this fire have burned a lot hotter and it just didn't, or is this pretty standard? you know, burn protocol, so to speak, for, you know, the vegetation type? Uh, or is this one of these that, you know, we're all kind of, you know, wiping our brow going, wow, that could have been bad, but it actually it, it didn't burn very hot and it actually will be good probably ultimately down the road for vegetation and wildlife and what have you? Um, I think based, I mean, all of the above could be true. Um, from the, the actual... Uh, footprint of Woodbury, um, the fact that we had such a low amount of high-intensity um, fire move through there, the majority of that will be good for wildlife and for plant life down the road. Um, but it doesn't look good now, and there may be some flood-related um, events that could cause different issues. But every fire almost every fire, I shouldn't say every fire, but almost every fire, while what we may see in pictures is, or visualize in our mind is large flames, you know, just taking out everything in its path, that's not how fire um, works. And so this pattern of a mosaic of some, you know, light burn, almost no burn, some areas that didn't burn at all, and some areas although small, that burn at a high intensity is normal, and that's a good thing for, you know, the landscape, the environment, and for wildlife because it creates those, those diversities of choices of plants for all of, you know, for all of the things that live out there. Have there been, uh, I'm, I'm in Colorado, I haven't been in the valley since the fire, have there, well, are you guys monitoring the amount of precipitation that has fallen or will fall potentially and speak a little bit to that and then also talking to the people listening to the podcast, uh, what should they be aware of as far as potential flooding areas? Are there any particular areas that you guys have outlined as, you know, you know, very 
carefully watched areas that you anticipate some problems if there were to be showers in the correct, you know, in the, in the right areas to create that, you know, flooding? Certainly, and that's, that's a perfect segue to what the, the BEAR team does because part of their role is to sit down and model what they think might happen if you got rain in those watersheds and, and they know, you know, what a typical flood flow would be from an, from an unburned area with rain and then they take that same amount of rain and they model it based on, you know, no vegetation and what could happen. And so they did that um, and pulled together a report and then they have spoken to the communities that are directly adjacent to the Woodbury Fire, which would include the town of like Roosevelt. There's some private property um, on the east side. Uh, some of the stuff that's like in Gold Canyon and Apache Junction and then stuff, you know, right along the Apache Trail. And they've talked to individual ranchers and they've talked to some of those communities that are potentially in a flood plain or potentially in an area could experience a heavy flood. Um, so that the individual community members have been um, tied in and they're aware and, and are watching and are, are working with the local community emergency management on how best to, to address that because nothing, you know, any of us can do can prevent a natural occurrence, whether it be wildfire or whether it be a, a monsoon summer rain. From the perspective of a, of a, you know, somebody going out to go to the lake, you know, any one of the chain of lakes, or hiking, you know, those kinds of things, um, we always recommend several things. One is, is check the weather before you leave so you know what the potential is. Sign up for, you know, emergency alerts for whatever county you're going to be in, and then always watch the skies because you don't have to be directly um, near the rain to be affected by a potential flash flood. Um, sure. So that is part of the reason that we have several areas that remain closed due to the Woodbury fire. Um, so it, that includes um, working with the Arizona Department of Transportation, the middle eight miles of State Highway um, 88 Apache Trail is still closed. Um, there are some concerns for um, whether or not those historic bridges could sustain um, a monsoon storm. So that have there that's been some? Pardon me. I'm sorry. No, no. Go ahead. Ask. Uh, have there been some uh, rain showers, or has it been fairly dry on top of the burn area? Um, we've had several flash flood alerts, but I have not heard anything that we've actually had significant moisture over the burn area yet. So um, like probably the rest of Arizona, it has been spotty at best. So a little bit of the area has had some rain, but um, nobody's had enough yet. Okay, Dustin, a uh, couple questions for you. You said you uh, guys uh, monitored 81, I believe was the number of white-tailed deer, a black bear, a handful of bighorn sheep, rabbits, um, a lot of that kind of stuff. 
you mentioned the bighorn sheep. Uh, has there been an exodus of sheep in historical areas that have now moved over? Uh, and, you know, has it been, you know, have your guys out in the field or has anybody reported you know, abnormal amounts of sheep that have moved in, you know, some particular direction or another? Nothing that would, you know, lead us to saying specifically that we have more sheep in this area because of this fire event. Um, that's something that we added on our survey transect lines was to make sure and go into both known um, sheep areas that were adjacent to this fire to try and, because we know what those densities are in some of that area, to try and gauge that if we did have an increase. Anecdotally, um, some of the guys that work at SRP and a couple of the dams, both at Apache Lake and a Canyon Lake, have made comments to us that they have seen a few more sheep, um, especially in that Fish Creek area. Um, a lot of people are very familiar with that, and it has a lot of bighorn sheep, very rough terrain, but there's so much hiding cover in there, um, we don't know. We may try and do an extra survey in mid-late October because that's when, you know, they're a little bit more visible and the rams will come out that we, and we might get some vegetation and might move out and see if we can go in there and try and monitor those once again. Naturally, um, both the general public and hunters have been commenting on that because, you know, that is a very um, coveted, you know, hunt permit tag to have in this area. So they're naturally very concerned and, and wanting to know what's going on with bighorn sheep. So um, still a little bit unknown on that. But like I said, um, when we flew over those traditional areas where we knew the sheep were at and seeing the amount of burn that went straight up cliff faces where we knew that sheep occupy, it was kind of surprising to see that that fire would progress across the top of those rocky cliffs and everything, but didn't see any carcasses whatsoever. And we were specifically looking for those, which is good. And that area there was a low burn intensity and severity. So they definitely had the opportunity to move out of that area. Some of the bighorn sheep that we did see were back in the burn already, um, which is good because yeah. wildlife knows the most nutritious, you know, most beneficial, you know, succulent plants and vegetation out there is stuff that comes up right after a burn. So they definitely find it very quickly. Um, as far as, I wanted to take a step back real quick. Um, Carrie did a good job explaining what the bear team does and everything. And based on some of their recommendations, when we, we integrated some of that into the surveys that we did during that week, as we were ferrying back and forth, we would hit some of those drainages that they would mention that there were concerns. Um, we actually put some of our aquatics you know, staff there that um, deal with our fisheries and, and the streams that are in there because we do have Gila top minnow and longfin dace in some of those drainages, and we wanted to see whether or not that's going to get flushed out, if it's going to kill off those populations once all that sediment and ash flow comes into those drainages. And for the most part, the ones that our department has been monitoring long-term, most of them look pretty good that to either if they, we do end up some losses, we can restock those fairly easily. Um, a couple of the drainages actually have some non-native, like red ear sunfish or green sunfish in those areas. And some of them may look like if we get sediment flow in those, it'll take care of our issue and get rid of some of those non-native, you know, introduced species in there. And we can go back in there and put native aquatic wildlife back in those. So sometimes, yeah, fire's a really good thing that we don't know until it's all said and done. Um, but like I said, for the most part, um, 
you know, we have a lot of, you know, hunters that are interested in that area, especially with the whitetail tags coming up and, you know, mule deer permits both in October, November, December, that I keep telling people it's a little bit too early to speculate on a lot of that. Um, we don't even know some of that area may or may not be closed, so we're continue to work with the Tonto on that and just monitor that, that public safety is, you know, foremost on the top of the list for all of us and everything. But um, overall, things are looking pretty good. I know we talked about the precipitation. It um, means how I live right here in the East Valley. We've had at least two or three rainstorms come through, and they've ranged from anywhere from a couple tenths of an inch up to half to three-quarters of an inch, but it's been fairly spotty, and, and I don't think we've seen any flood events. That If some of those continue to happen that way and we get regeneration, it rebuilds that soil and can kind of hold some of that sediment. could be a good thing as well, but... Um, I know, hate to say that it's fortunate that we have probably learned from a lot of other wildfires across the state of what to potentially expect on, you know, the Woodbury fire and what kind of reaction we can actually see if we do get heavy flows and everything. And, and that makes it pretty easy to predict some of the stuff for closures and, and recommendations and everything and try and mitigate that as it happens and then, of course, after it happens. Sure, absolutely. Uh just for those, I'm going to definitely check out those burn severity maps and, you know, take a look at all that. That's some great resources. But just for people, just um, from an audio perspective, trying to picture some of this, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, It the fire did not cross to the north of the Apache Trail. In other words, all of the Woodbury fire was contained on the south side say when you're going from I guess it would be Tortilla Flats to Roosevelt uh, in other words it burned on the south side of Fish Creek but not on the north side of that 188 or, or is it 88 or 188 whatever the Apache Trail it, it all stayed south right it did and I know a majority of your listeners and a lot of them are you know nationally hunters and including Arizona that a lot of people are familiar with this and being Game Management Unit 24B. So the fire was basically contained within 24B. Um, I kind of pulled up on a map that just overall the whole Game Management Unit is 497,000 acres. This fire burned to 124,000 almost. But if you pull out some of the communities of Gold Canyon, Apache Junction, that are within that, um, it's probably more realistically to about 350,000 acres. So this fire burned probably a third, if not 40, 45% of huntable area within that game management unit, which is fairly significant. Um, so we'll definitely be monitoring, you know, harvest success, you know, coming up this fall because with a lot of this vegetation gone, they've lost a lot of their hiding cover. And if it greens up, you know, that, that wildlife that may be during those hunting seasons will be vulnerable to, you know, the gun and, and to harvest and everything. So we're going to have to monitor it very, very closely and, you know, look at those trends and adjust, you know, permit levels to make sure that we are not over-harvesting any of those huntable species within this unit. Um, so maybe decreased opportunities in the future, maybe increased. Um, it's too early to tell on a lot of that. But just kind of rest assured, you know, our department's, you know, mission is conserve and protect, you know, the wildlife in Arizona for future generations, and this is no different, um, major wildfire. But in the long run, as we've already discussed, I think this is going to be a very beneficial burn. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dustin, but a lot of that country, um, you know, and I hate to use the, the, the word, you know, 
it's good country to burn because I know people are cringing when they hear that, but there's a lot of that country that's pretty thick and brushed up and, and, you know, a slow moving fire is probably a good thing and opening some of that terrain up. And it, it sounds like it burned in mosaic pattern. So, you know, there's areas within the fire area that, you know, didn't burn at all or burned very, very uh, slowly. And, and, you know, so there's quite a bit of vegetation left. I mean, it, it seems like from a deer hunting type perspective or deer hunters perspective, uh, it, it actually probably will do wonders for the white-tailed deer. I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Absolutely. Um, and actually, a lot of that area, I'm kind of hopeful that maybe mule deer will come back, that it's opened up some of that traditional area that kind of got choked in from vegetation because most of that area probably has not seen a burn of any sort in 70 years. Um, so it's definitely really got thick over to what it was traditionally. And I've you know seen over the years, over the last even 30 years, the switch in the population of whitetail compared to mule deer. And you know hopefully some of this will open that back up that if they have all their other habitat needs in there, but hopefully mule deer will try and you know reoccupy some of those areas. Um, but whitetail will as well. They're already in some of those areas. They're very adaptable, more so than mule deer in this area, that they may totally kind of take over as well, and mule deer may still suffer. But So we're kind of hopeful in, in those aspects. Um, but, yeah, it did open up a lot of that area that's been choked up and, and um, needed a burn to kind of clear some of that up and create that mosaic. Uh, speaking about some of the smaller animals, Dustin, in, in fires such as this, are, is there any one particular animal that does not fare well at all in burns? And, you know, it, you know, from the, a lot of the positivity that I'm hearing, is there any, like, oh, darn, it's going to wipe out the such and such? I mean, is, um, educate us on, you know, anything out there that maybe it's, you know, going to hit pretty hard and it'll be years before that bounces back. So two aspects came to mind as soon as you kind of mentioned that, that I'm very thankful for the foresight of the firefighters and the incident command teams and everything that we've got Mexican spotted owl habitat within that area, which is, you know, right up there close to that threatened and endangered level that it's a species of greatest conservation need, that there is identified habitat in some of the southern part of that unit as well as like the Rivas Ranch area that a lot of people are familiar with that and the old um, fruit orchards that are in there, that both of those areas and some of the other cultural resources, so there's a ton of cultural resources that are in there, that all of these different aspects the incident teams took into consideration and whether they were able to divert resources from containment on one area and put it into protecting these habitat areas and these structures, cultural, historical, whatever it happened to be, that I'm very impressed that they were able to do that and successfully, you know, protect that area. That um, a lot of that Mexican spotted owl, you know, habitat is kind of condensed, not very broad, that they were able to go in there and use their fire retardant, use the helicopters with drops, fire lines, whatever it was, and protect some of that core habitat area. Some of it, yeah, probably got lost, and we can tell from kind of the burn severities that some of it did, but they were able to save a lot of that instead of it going across that whole landscape and burning the majority of it. They were able to save some of that, including Rivas Ranch. And over at the Tano National Monument, there's a lot of cliff dwellings and, and other structures over there that they were able to protect. Um, so it's not just suppressing the fire. It's also protecting resources both 
values at risk for humans, but also values you know, for cultural and historical and wildlife that they really did good at protecting you know, all of those resources. Um, with that in mind, um, naturally we aren't able to fully see the effects yet for the small animals as far as any rodents and metal jumping mouse and all that, reptiles, amphibians um, that may be in that area, that most of them being how it's a low severity burn. Once again, fairly comfortable since they're a ground dwelling you know, wildlife that they were probably able to get underneath and, you know, ride it out as it went across and stuff like that. So we're seeing the number of small wildlife on our surveys, you know, within just a week after the fire was contained um, leaves us fairly optimistic as well. Um, we know that there's usually more loss on that that, you know, people don't see as far as, you know, the snakes and, and some of the reptiles that may not be able to get out in front of this. But with this regeneration and, and hopefully moisture and everything, they rebound fairly quickly, you know, surprisingly on a lot of that. My biggest concern as this was moving eastward was the javelina. Um, anybody that hunts javelina knows that they don't have very good eyesight. They've got a great sense of smell. But if a fire comes up a canyon, were they going to be able to escape and get out of the way of a fire even though it was slow moving? Um, just whether or not they were going to have that natural instinct or even to navigate you know, through the flames and everything. Um, so probably seeing a little bit less um, over our traditional surveys that we do on an annual basis in some of those areas, but we didn't fully extend out past, uh, you know, half a mile or more outside that fire perimeter to fully evaluate that just because of time and, and funding and everything. But, um, yeah, we'll keep, keep monitoring in the future for sure. But overall, yeah, I think maybe some of the smaller mammals and, and reptiles, amphibians, might have taken more of a cost, but there's nothing to basically put that to fact yet, you know, either. Sure. It's just kind of what sure. we've learned on other fires that have actually happened, and those that do those typical surveys and monitoring efforts um, haven't ever been alarmed or concerned that it causes specific management actions within a couple of years after a fire that everything came back just fine. It's like, yeah, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna thrive once again. Good stuff. Uh, Terry, I want to give you a chance to, uh, if, if you feel like I missed anything that's important, and then Dustin, you be thinking about it as well. Uh, Kerry, uh, anything that I missed not asking or any important information that you think the listeners need to hear, uh, please feel free to, to take the floor and, and answer that. And again, I appreciate both of you uh, coming on and sharing with us about it. I know it was uh, uh, something that, you know, people have a lot of questions about, and I think this will answer a lot of them. So please, if, if I've forgotten anything or you think it's necessary, uh, take the time here to uh, let us know. Well, thank you for that opportunity. Um, I think uh, D uh, Dustin did an excellent job explaining a lot of the stuff about fire and how it worked, and I appreciate all of his time and efforts with that because I think that help to educate and inform the public. The one thing that I would like to leave with everyone is just that um, a fair amount of the superstition wilderness does remain closed. Um, currently, uh, there's a closure order in place that goes into September. The reasoning for that has to do with the unpredictability of the monsoon storms. And if you get into any of those trails, you're a long way from anyone or any help. 
And if you got stranded in there, you'd probably uh, stay. And if you did not have cell coverage, no one might know you're there. So the area is closed you know, through the monsoon season. All any of us can do at this time is watch the storms and hope, like Dustin said, that we get you know, light storms that just continue to provide a little bit of rain and not heavy, heavy monsoon moisture. So, um, and we'll keep, as an agency, keep continuing to evaluate what's out there and how that environment is reacting to um, the weather. And, and we will adjust accordingly as we see what, how this summer plays out. Thank you very much, Carrie, and thank you for your public service. Um, uh, it's, it's probably sometimes you don't get thanked a lot, but uh, I want to thank you uh, from, from myself and from my listeners uh, taking the time to uh, answer my questions. Uh, Dustin, uh, in, anything that you feel like we need to cover uh, that we did not? Mm, probably not. You know, if people got specific questions, they can definitely call the Mesa Regional Office and ask for, you know, one of us in the game program or wildlife program. Um, probably going to get me. Means how I've probably been one of the most involved. Or, you know, Kelly Wolf with our habitat program was assigned to the BEAR team, was, was instrumental in dealing with our staff within the region on all wildlife issues and, and bringing that to the team to make them aware and, you know, just including our part. So, Want to reciprocate, you know, the thanks and the gratitude to you know all the members of Tonto National Forest, including Carrie. Um, it's always interesting to see what process they have to go through and understand um, the day-to-day -day activities and you know just the chaos that nobody ever sees that's involved in any one of these instances and everything, and how smooth it comes out on the end. Um, so definitely, they put in a lot of work, and actually, they are constantly updating their website. So another plug for the Tonto National Forest. People can go into their website and they can look over on the right hand side of that page and there's you know fire closure orders and everything that are continually updated that if the public is interested in going and back out and recreating in that area, definitely check those closure areas. They are there you know for your safety um, for sure. But it opened up our eyes um, immensely. You can get you know so much off of the photographs that are on the InsaWeb incident page and then you can kind of guess what it looks like on the fire severity maps and some of the other photos that are provided. But until we actually got up in the air with a helicopter and surveyed that area, it reinforced the positive nature that we were kind of hoping for, and it just totally puts things into perspective. So uh, please look forward to both our media platforms that we may have, you know, some pictures coming out and some maps and, and the survey information and everything and try and get some more of that information out there for the public um, because we are, you know, gracious that they're very interested in the wildlife and the landscape of this area. Um, being this close to a metropolitan area definitely got a lot of interest and, and influence from that. So we definitely appreciate everybody's comments and concerns and everything, and, and uh, it helps us, you know, doing the right thing for sure. Awesome. Well, again, uh, thanks to both of you guys. Uh, have a great day, and thanks for sharing an hour with us, and keep up the great work, okay? Thanks, Jay. Appreciate thanks. your efforts as well getting this information out there. All right. Take care, Bye. both of you.